Happy New Year. It's good to see you all on the other side of uh, 2016. Um, thank you. Let me just make sure this is working. Hello? Okay. All right. How many of you made New Year's resolutions? One brave soul. <laughs> uh, actually, Roy, could you just pin this on the back? Uh, Roy and I made two resolutions this year. One is to sleep earlier. Um, and last night we were unsuccessful in doing that. But uh, hopefully tonight we'll be able to do it. The other is that every day we're going to journal one thing that the other person did that made us happy that day. One thing that we appreciate, appreciate about the other person. And so we did do that yesterday. Um, and we're hoping to, to do that is that on? Um, every day. Sorry, I don't have pockets. They don't make women's dresses with pockets. There you go. All right. Thank you. Um, yeah, I noticed that many of you did not raise your hand when asked the question about New Year's resolutions, and that's because many people don't do them anymore. And one of the main reasons is that they have failed in the past to keep them, so they think, why bother? Why bother? I'm just not going to set myself up for disappointment. I just won't make any at all. But if you are in that camp of realistic pessimism and cynicism, then I want to challenge you today to reconsider your attitude towards change. Because especially if we are trying to embrace a Christ-centered worldview, the Bible often suggests that change is impossible with men, but possible with God. And in fact, the Bible says such things like, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, behold, the new has come. And so the Bible is full of promises about character, development, and transformation and renewal of mind. But we have a challenge here because on the one hand, we have such Bible promises about change. But on the other hand, we have the everyday, realistic, day-to-day experience of failing, of trying to change and not being able to, or trying to overcome an addiction and falling into it again, um, trying to keep our temper and finding ourselves continually being the same person that we were before. And so how do we reconcile the difference between the promises that are found in the Bible with the reality of the Christian experience? Now I want to uh, present to you that perhaps we have three misconceptions about change um, that we need to debunk and let go of in order to embrace then the truth about change that the Bible presents. And I want to look at those by looking at an example in the Bible of a story of a man who changed, uh, a, a different type of change than perhaps what you're thinking. But the story is found in the second book of Second Kings, chapter 5. Um, the book of Second Kings is a book in the Old Testament. It's one of the history books that relates um, the stories of the Israelite nation as they went from being a small group of people to being a powerful nation and then once again going to exile, etc. So the book is Second Kings, and we're going to be looking at a story found in chapter 5. Second Kings chapter 5. Now, as we look at this story, I will be making some um, illustrations and, um, 
and points that relate to today. So keep your Bible um, or your smartphones open to 2 Kings chapter 5, and we're going to be returning to it from time to time. It starts in verse 1. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. So we find out lots of information just from that first verse. We find out that Captain Naaman was actually the second in command in all of the land of Syria. Um, in fact, the king at that time was King Ben-Hadad II. It was around 900 BC. And so during this time, the king of Syria had invaded the king of, it, of all, the Israelite nation. The king was Joram at the time. And they had successfully uh, conquered areas of, of Israel and had taken many people captive. And so Captain Naaman, as you can imagine, was not only one of the most powerful men in Syria, but he was also a wealthy man. But even though he had power and wealth, he did not have his health. He was a leper. Now, leprosy um, was what they kind of clumped together all the skin conditions of that time. So it could have been as mild as perhaps some discoloration or some blotchy skin. Or it could have been as extreme as the kind of leprosy that we know of today, which results in the loss of your nerves um, nerve endings kind of not relating pain back to your brain, which results in, you know, you're chopping something up and you chop off your finger and you don't even realize it. And then it leads to an infection or you bump into something and injure yourself and you don't realize it, so you keep walking on it, etc. And so it would often lead to um, dismemberment and eventually death. And so it seems that Captain Naaman did not have that extreme case yet. At least, at least it seems like he still had access to the king. He had not been ostracized and removed from society, which was often the case if you were a leper. And so it seems like Captain Naven either had a mild case or that it was just the beginning stages. But can you imagine, even though he had it all, he knew that if he could not be healed from this disease, and at the time there was no cure, that no matter how much money, no matter how much power, no matter how much position he had, it would all come to nothing. Now, he's not left to his fate. Look at what happens in verse 2. The Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife, and she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of this leprosy. And Naaman went and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Verse 5, Then the king of Syria said, Go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Now this is incredible, that this foreigner, who is a wealthy man of great position, takes the word of a young servant girl, who is actually the uh, servant girl from the land that he has just conquered. You see, in that time period, if you conquered another nation, then the belief was that your gods were more powerful than their gods. And so it's amazing that Captain Naaman has enough faith in this god to be able to say, even though I went in and conquered their land, and even though this young girl, she's not someone of great position, she's not someone who is an expert doctor, but yet he believes in her testimony enough, not just to go, but to actually go taking a great reward. He's anticipating that healing might happen. 
and that he's getting ready to give recompense for the healing that is going to happen. The irony here is that even though this foreigner has great faith in this God, the king of Israel, who is supposed to be one of the representatives and one of the greatest models of that relationship with God, fails to have any faith at all. If you continue the story in verse 7, when the king of Israel read the letter, that is the letter from the king of Syria, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. Verse 8, So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now we get to the interesting bits. Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. Verse 10, And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the place and heal leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Why was Naaman so angry? Well, several reasons. First of all, he says, I expected the prophet to come to me, right? He's an important man. He's thinking to himself, okay, if I'm not going to have the red carpet, you know, welcome, at least come out to me in person. But no, Elisha sent a servant. So his pride is wounded. But it's not just that. The instructions are ridiculous. He is told to go wash in the Jordan River seven times. And that infuriates him. Remember, he's, he's come to this land before. He knows that the River Jordan is not the cleanest. It's not the most refreshing place to bathe, right? You know, on Tuesday, it was Micah's last day in childcare for 2015. And uh, next year, he's going to be going into a different childcare system. So he's got a little break in between. So Roy and I thought, this is our last chance of freedom. <laughs> and so we took the day off from work. And Roy surprised me by renting a boat. Um, and we actually... Uh, sailing is not the right word. Neither did we row. I don't know what you want to call it. We, we chugged along the river, the Yara River, um, on Tuesday from Docklands to the Royal Botanical Gardens. And it was lovely. It was a lovely day. Um, it was just a really nice experience. But I did notice during the semi-romantic chugging along that um, the water, the river, the Yara River, is not clean. <laughs> And if, and I was, you know, I had the life vest, but I was thinking, I would not want to fall in there, right? I would not want to go in there at all. And can you imagine, here is this great man. He's probably getting, you know, those baths, um, with a private area with like oils and peppermints and spices being anointed on him by the servants. That's the kind of bath that he's used to. And he's being told to go bathe in the River Jordan, which was a very muddy river. With leeches, probably. Or at least something in there that you don't want on your body. Secondly, you have to also remember that during this time, and, and even today, in the Eastern culture especially, you do not get naked in, in public. Um, it's a very shameful thing to take off your clothes, especially if you're a man, an important man. 
it would be shameful even to take off even an outer garment. And so they always kept their clothes on. They were very dignified, right? But here he is told, strip naked and, and bathe in this public space. Mind you, public enemy territory space. The commander of the army, he has to take off his weapons, take off his clothes, completely humiliate and make himself vulnerable in front of his enemies. He does not, not like that at all. Not only does it wound his pride, but it goes against his common sense, goes against his culture, it goes, it goes against tradition, goes against every logical thing in his mind. And so in great anger, he turns away. He turns away. And here we come to that first misconception we have about change. We expect change to happen in a way that makes sense to us, in a way that's convenient to us. So when we pray and we ask God for certain circumstances to change, when we pray and ask God for certain character traits to change, we want God to do it immediately, and we want to do it our way. But we must remember that sometimes God's purpose is not to actually bring about change, but to develop us in us a character of change. Let me explain that a bit further. Notice how in verse 11, Naaman says, I expected you to come out, wave your hand over the spot, say the name of your God, and then I would be healed. So in other words, he was expecting some kind of, you know, you put the right words together with the right circumstance, and boom, voila, magical, abracadabra, he would be healed. He wanted change to be done to him. But God had something greater in mind for Naaman than just the physical healing. And so he didn't just put change on him. He didn't just perform an external change. He wanted Naaman to participate and exercise his free will to surrender his pride, to swallow his anger, and to actually go through the character development that was needed. And that's what we have to embrace. When it comes to change, we have to understand that God is not interested in just changing our circumstances, but he's interested in making us individuals who choose daily to commit to change. Let me give you an illustration. When it comes to mountain climbing, oftentimes for us, the goal is just get to the top of the mountain. And so we ask God to just teleport us up there. That's what we want. But God says, no, I want to actually make individuals who are capable of climbing, to become actual mountain climbers. And to become that, sometimes you're not even at the mountain. You might be in the gym, on a treadmill, or lifting weights, or in an indoor rock climbing gym. You might be nowhere near the mountain. Or maybe you're finally at the mountain, but you're nowhere near the top, and you think to yourself, what's the point? This is hopeless. But we don't realize that in that process, we're actually strengthening our muscles. We're actually strengthening our, our endurance so that when the day comes, we somehow make it and we realize, wow, we, we got to the top. We got to the top. And so God does not change our circumstances. He doesn't just wave his hand over our, you know, belly fat and boom, it goes away, you know. He doesn't just wave his hand over our, our bank accounts and all of a sudden we are now financially stable. He could. And sometimes God does provide miracles that are instantaneous and it's wonderful, but usually, most of the time, God chooses instead to say to us and encourage us, hey, I want you to go and do something that is difficult and humbling and unexpected and out of character 
and countercultural. And I want you to do that seven times. The number seven is a symbolic number in the Bible. Often it is used uh, in conjunction with the idea of perfection or completion, whereas the number six is identified with the number of a man, and it's often uh, portrayed as something that is a copy of or incomplete. So you've got 666 versus God's seven, etc., etc. And so it's significant that Elisha says to Naaman, I want you to go and bathe not just once, not just twice, but seven times. Seven times. And I, I wonder if Naaman, receiving those instructions, thought to himself, somebody just sat there and thought, what is the most ridiculous and um, illogical thing I can possibly tell this man? Oh, I know, let's make him go bathe in a dirty river seven times, right? And so he, when he heard that message, he must have thought to himself, you must be kidding me. It's one thing to go in once, but seven times. You can imagine in his anger as he turned away, you know, he had already driven hundreds of kilometers on the chariot to get there. All he had to do was go just a few more kilometers to get to the river, but he turns around and heads back home after all that journey. But... Once again, God had other plans for him. And I really like how God placed good people in his life. And you know, when it comes to change, you need good people in your life. Especially when it comes to um, making resolutions, right? There's a reason why Roy and I make resolutions together. It's because we, we need each other to keep each other accountable. So you need good people in your life who can, who can keep you accountable and say, Hey, hold on a second. And, and that's what happens here. If you, we pick up the story once again, if you go to verse... 13. His servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? Really good advice, right? Oftentimes we, we, we think that if, if God asks us to do something great, then that'll lead to great change. For example, back when I was in America and I was pastoring a church that had a lot of young people who were going through university, uh, many of them weren't sure what should I study? What, should, what career should I choose? Who should I marry? You know, like they had all these big questions and they thought, oh, and how do I go close to God? And sometimes, bizarrely, their conclusion was, I'm going to go be missionary for one year um, in some country. And while it's great to do that, I, I, I don't have anything against that, they just thought to themselves, if I just go away and, and give God one year of my life, then surely by the end of that time, God will tell me exactly what I should do with my life show me the person I'm supposed to marry and change me so that I will just be faithful to him. And they just thought that this change would happen as a result of them giving so much of themselves and doing something great for God. But it's often not, and this is the second thing, misconception that we have when it comes to change. We think that something great has to happen. But it's often the small things that God asks of us. For Captain Naaman, who was a great commander... If Elijah had told him, you must cross a scorching desert, you must climb the highest mountain, and you must, you know, fight off the dragon, and then you will be healed, he probably would have done it with gusto, because that's what he's good at. He gets to show off what he's capable of. Then he can earn it, right? But instead, he's asked to do something that anyone can do. Go into a river and dip into it seven times. Sometimes we want change or we expect change to happen 
in exchange for a great service to God or a great prayer, we think, I just didn't pray hard enough. If I pray more fervently or if more people pray for me, or you know, we, we think something extraordinary has to happen. But actually change happens in the small, everyday, ordinary things and decisions. Roy was telling me today, there's an acronym. The seemingly, it's SUD, seemingly unimportant decisions. Did I get that right, Roy? The seemingly unimportant decisions, suds. You know, when you're washing, you have the suds, right? It's the seemingly unimportant decisions that will cleanse you, that will make you whole. The seemingly unimportant decisions such as, you know what? I should just go to bed now. <laughs> um, and that's going to influence how you feel tomorrow morning, which will influence whether you have time to actually read the Bible before you rush off to do your next thing, you know? It's the seemingly unimportant decisions, like... I'm going to turn off my mobile phone now and put that aside so that I can go to sleep, you know. It's those little everyday tasks. It's going to church, you know. It's such a normal, ordinary thing that God asks of us to place ourselves in an environment where we can hear the Word of God and connect with each other. But it's these small things that actually enable us to develop the character of change. And when Naaman receives this advice, you know, he was not only a, an honorable man, but he was a wise man at this point, because he listens. In verse 14, so he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Can you imagine if Naaman went in the first time, and oh, the water was cold, and he immediately jumped out? That's what I would do. I hate hate cold water. I can never bathe or go swimming in any of the beaches in Victoria. It's way too cold. No matter how hot it is outside, the water is freezing. And so I cannot swim. I can't do it. Can't wait to go to Hawaii in a couple of weeks. Um, actually, even Hawaii, when we went for our honeymoon, I, I told her it was too cold. But, um, and so can you imagine if you went in the first time and said, oh, it's too cold. Or if you went in the second time and the leeches came on and he was like, no, I am not doing this. Or if he went in a third time and some of the mud got in his nose, you know? And, and, and the sixth time he went in and he's like, nothing's changing. What's the point? Right? And if he gave up. And there we come to the third misconception we have about change. We expect change to be a visible, progressive thing. In other words, if this is the 600th time we've attempted, we expect that to be more successful than the first time. But the reality is that change isn't always like that. Have you ever tried to make whipped cream out of eggs? Anyone? You know how you take the egg whites? Is it the egg whites? Yeah, egg whites. And you're like beating and you're beating and you're beating and you're beating. And then there's this magical moment where it actually becomes whipped cream. But up until that moment, there is no telling how close you are. You just have to keep going at it, right? And, and at any point, you're thinking it might be at the next few seconds. Or it might not, but you just keep doing it. Sometimes change is like that. Chemistry, you know? Sometimes there is no visible progressive change. No consequence, no uh, effect. Nothing to tell you that change is coming. Until, boom, it's there. Sometimes it is progressive, but oftentimes it isn't. And I think we need to let go of that false idea that if we have failed for the 600th time, then it's hopeless. 
when we're actually we might just be that one away from success. You've heard that saying about Thomas Edison. How many times did it take him to make a light bulb? What three thousand something like that? And you know the reporter had asked him, "Oh, you failed that many times?" And he said something like, "No, I had you know two thousand nine hundred ninety. I'm making it up, but two thousand nine hundred ninety-nine successful attempts at learning how not to make a light bulb." And he and he was a genius because he realized that those failures were actually enabling him to succeed. So you see, we actually, when we fail, when we actually are not changing, we think we're a hopeless mess and that there is no way to change. Might as well forget making resolutions. But actually, those failures are actually teaching us. They're strengthening us. They're enabling us to to learn. So, for example, if I Miss my devotions. I can. I ask myself, why was that? Oh, because I went to sleep late. Why did I go to sleep late? Oh, I was bored. You know, waiting for Roy to come home. And okay, next time instead of being bored, waiting for Roy to come home, I can just go to sleep. Or you know, you you learn from your mistakes, right? You 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 analyze and you ask yourself what went wrong in that. Then you know what some of your triggers are for next time. I think that the miracle that Captain Nemo experiences. It's more than the physical. God could have just healed him, you know, like that. But God makes Naaman go through this process because He wants to teach Naaman something. When when Naaman receives his healing, he comes back to Elisha in verse fifteen, and he says, "Indeed, now I know that there is no god in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant." But Elisha said, "As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive nothing." And Naaman urged him to take it, but he still refused. So Naaman said, "Then, if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer any burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord." And here we come to this final、um, lesson about change. Naaman thought, "Wow, this God is powerful. I want to, I want to, you know, worship him." I want to acknowledge him, and he wants to give Elisha these gifts as a thank you. And Elisha says no, because Elisha wants to teach him something very important about God, and that is this: healing and salvation is a gift, completely undeserved. There's nothing God asks of us; He gives it to us for free. And you know, leprosy in Leviticus 13. Describes the characteristics of leprosy. It has a lot in common with sin.、Um, leprosy and sin both defile from within, pollutes the land, makes us lose our sensitivity, so that we end up hurting ourselves and others. And ultimately, only fire can can end it, can stop it. And so the Bible、uh, makes several kind of parallels between leprosy and sin and. How cleansing from leprosy is like salvation and cleansing from our sinfulness. And when it comes to this moment, Elisha really wants to illustrate to Naaman,、uh, your leprosy has been cleansed. You have been made whole, and it's a gift. And he's implying, and so is a relationship with God, and ultimately your salvation. And Naaman somehow, you know, not fully, but understands this enough to say, I'm going to worship God and only God from now on. He's the one that I want to build this relationship with, because he understands that this grace 
is something so unique that nothing else has ever offered him before. And I want to encourage us to really dwell on that experience of grace. I've shared this illustration before, but I'll share it again because I think it's so powerful. If someone asked you to walk across a tightrope without a net, and they said, "Don't worry, I'll give you as much time as you need," would you do it? Do you think you'll be able to do it? I certainly can't. I have a fear of heights. <laughs> but if someone said to you, "Here is a tightrope set with a net." A net that will never break, a net that you know has plenty of cushion, so that you don't injure yourself too badly and you, when you fall, um, and you have much time as you need. I want you to learn how to walk across it. Do you think you can do it? Maybe. At least you'll go up and try. Especially if the reward is, we'll give you a million dollars if you can walk across this this uh, tightrope. You have as much time as you need. Go ahead. I would try. I would conquer my fear of heights and I would try. <laughs> Right, um, a million dollars—a lot of money. And so, when when God says to us, "Hey, when you are still a sinner, when you hadn't changed a bit, when you had as many spots as a leopard—leopard—did I say that right? Um, the animal, right—and you are a, your sins are like scarlet," He says, "When you are still a sinner, I died for you. I'm offering you forgiveness. I'm offering you salvation." It's a gift. You don't have to do anything to earn it. It's called grace. And he says, "There's your net. There's your net." Now he says, "I want you to learn how to walk with me, and follow me, and be like me. But take as much time as you need." You see, when we have that net of grace, when we know that we have the assurance of salvation, we don't have to be afraid of failure. One of the reasons why we don't like making news resolution is because we don't want to fail. Because we think to ourselves, I don't want to set myself up for failure. I don't want to disappoint myself again. I don't want to break another resolution. But I want to change that mentality. It's okay to fail because we have a net. And actually, getting up and falling is another opportunity for us to get back up and learn how to do it again. And the more you go up. And fall, and the more you go up and fall, eventually you'll be able to walk across. But you will never learn how to walk across if you stay on the ground because you're afraid to fail, because you're afraid to fall. And God understands that, and so that's why He gives us grace. That's why He says, "You already have salvation. I already love you if you don't forgive your neighbor. I already love you if you struggle with lust. I already love you if you struggle with laziness and greed." I already love you if you have a bad temper. I already love you if you can't exercise and you know eating junk food all the time. I already love you. Here is the grace net. But I also want you to live a healthier, better life where you're more like me. I guarantee you, you'll be happier and you'll experience more meaning. And so get on that tightrope and try again. It's okay if you fall. Just get back up. I have found once I understood this concept that I'm not going to lose my salvation by failing. Because in the past I used to be afraid, right? Oh, if I try and I fail, I'm going to disappoint God and disappoint myself. And ah,、oh, come, I can't, you know. And then you go into that downward spiral. And then, I, and then once I understood this this net of grace that the Bible talks about, that Naaman learns, then it's okay if I fall. I mean, you know, you don't want to like 
take a cavalier attitude about it, but it's okay if you fall. And you say, God, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for letting me have that grace net. I'm going to get back up and try again. I'm not afraid of failure because not only do I have salvation, but the more I try, one day, Lord, the seventh time, right? The seven millionth time, whatever it may be, that, that last time, I will be able to be like you. You know, the Bible says that God himself will complete the good work he has begun in us until the day of Jesus Christ. What day is that? The second coming of Jesus. In other words, until he comes again, we are going to be failing. We're going to be learning. We're going to be climbing that mountain and falling and slipping. But that's okay. God simply asks us to be on the journey. He simply asks us to be willing to follow through. He's going to be the one to coach us, to be there with us, to strengthen us, help us back up, and He will enable us one day to be able to walk across the tightrope, to be able to climb the mountain, to be cleansed of our sins, to be cleansed of our whatever it is, to be healed. And when He comes again, He's going to look at us and say, You made it! And we're going to be made perfect at that point. Even though we're not there yet, don't give up. So my prayer and hope and wish for all of us in 2016 is let the miracle of grace inspire us to want to keep trying. There's a, there's a hymn that says, it took a miracle to hang the stars in space. But the greatest miracle of all is the miracle of love and grace. And I pray that as we look forward to the miracle of internal change and external change, that most of all we embrace the miracle of God's love and grace that empowers us to even want to change it all. So may God bless, happy Sabbath, and happy New Year to you all.